Welcome to Disrupting Japan, straight talk from Japan's most successful entrepreneurs. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for joining me. Today, we're going to be talking about the future of both how we create and how we consume video. Now, I grant you, this may sound like something that's pretty hard to do in an audio format, but I think in some ways it's actually easier. After listening back to this interview after I recorded it, it became clear that imagining the possibility in your mind's eye is much more powerful than laying it all out for you in two dimensions. But we'll get to all of that in just a little bit. You see, today we sit down and talk with Sandeep Kasi, founder and CEO of Videogram. And we talk not only about the future of video, but also about a new model for unlocking some of the intellectual property that's currently locked up in large Japanese companies. You see, Sandeep and his team followed a very different startup model than what we see in Silicon Valley. And it's something we might be seeing a lot more of in Japan, because the model is so well suited to conditions here in Japan. Sandeep also has some really practical advice for participating in corporate accelerators and for new things startups absolutely must keep in mind when trying to sell innovative products to large enterprises. There are definitely trade-offs. In fact, you could say there's almost a built-in conflict of interest. We also share some real-world suggestions on how foreign founders can successfully raise multiple funding rounds in Japan. But you know, Sandeep tells that story much better than I can. So let's hear from our sponsor and get right to the interview. Your journey to success in Japan will involve some twists and turns. In trying to navigate new terrain, planning the safest, most effective way through on your own can be overwhelming. The Carter Group have been using market intelligence and research to guide Japan entrants for decades. They've honed an agile, cost-effective, but consultative approach that will help you find the perfect product market fit, explore user and consumer dynamics, and act as an honest broker to let you know the reputation and track record of potential partners here in Japan. And when you're ready to go... Their executive search team can also help you hire the right people to drive your business forward. So if you haven't got Japan completely figured out yet, the Carter Group can help you out. So I'm sitting here with Sandeep Kasi of Videogram, which is an amazing video product. So thanks for sitting down with me. Thank you, Tim, and thanks for the opportunity to talk to your audience. You know, it, it's so hard to describe video on an audio podcast. But if, if I understand it correctly, you use AI to create uh, like paneled previews of video. So it's kind of um, a storyboard or a comic book view. I think what you see as an end product is uh, what you just described, which is more of a pictorial summary of, the, of a video. Uh, but what's going on in the back end is a much more deeper technology. Okay. So we actually use machine learning to understand uh, a video context of a video, whether uh, the video has uh, scenes that's of interest, celebrities that have certain you know, uh, status that we think we should be surfacing for discovery, 
uh, as well as objects which might be interesting for monetization within the video. As it scans through the video, it could actually recognize not just there is a person here, but wow, that's Angelina Jolie. That's right, or that's, yes. Wow. Or uh, it recognizes uh, maybe something she's wearing, maybe sunglasses that she's wearing. And if we have trained the system, uh, we can also recognize brand of that sunglass. Um, so what we do is uh, we index the video down to its most atomic level. Uh, so if you look at uh, what Google does with uh, uh, text indexing, it indexes and brings in contextual results when you type in a keyword. Uh, so we do very similar things for video. We break a video down into the most atomic level by understanding what's inside of the video, not only from the perspective of the scene, the clip, the music, the lyrics, um, an object, as well as uh, con context. So, that, for example, beach, a car on a beach. And then once we get that metadata, then we can, it's almost like a Lego block. So once we have all of these Lego pieces, then you could construct different use cases from that Lego. Okay. So you can put that, you put those together in a, an engaging panel format. That's right. Yeah. So it's really cool technology, but why is it important? What is sure. it, what's it good for? So there are many different use cases. Uh, the first use case uh, is the discovery piece. So if you notice uh, with online video from its inception, it's usually one frame with a play, uh, with a play button. And that one frame, it has no context because, you know, by uh, definition, a video is a bunch of frames. And then a publisher picks one frame in order to uh, create a uh, advertisement of that video. So enticement, you know, frame, as we call it. And that frame is what enables you to click into the video. Most of the times that frame is actually a clickbait. Uh, yeah, it's, of course. It's like, like any headline. Like any headline, right? So what happens is that the even people click into that, they kind of drop off immediately because there's no instant gratification. They clicked into that frame because they want to consume that frame, uh, but they don't see it. Or even when they scan it, maybe they don't see it um, and they drop off. So what we do in terms of discovery is by surfacing the storyboard of the video, a contextual storyboard, everybody has a choice of their interest in the video. Somebody might actually see a dog in the video that might, they might be interested in, or somebody might see a sunglasses you know, of a celebrity that somebody's wearing. So everybody has a choice and then they can click onto that frame and there's an instant gratification because what they clicked on is what they see. Okay. It certainly makes sense that when you're providing more variety, you should get a higher level of engagement and a higher level of right. people watching the videos. And do, do the numbers bear that out? Yes, it does. Uh, usually uh, a click-through rate uh, for a single frame video is uh, in the range of 15%. Uh, we are actually seeing anywhere between 40 to 60%. Okay. Um, wow. Rate. So three times plus. Three times. And it's very simple. The choice, the reason that we see a larger click-through rate is because there's more choices to click on. So imagine a website uh, with, which has one headline, and that's the only headline you have. And if I don't like that headline, I don't click on it. But imagine an a article with multiple headlines, each, each headline going into a certain paragraph of that article. I'll be more interested in choosing the paragraph that I want. By, you know, by nature, we were actually not trained to watch content from end to end. This is an issue that, for some reason, uh, platforms like YouTube and Facebook uh, have created that a video should be consumed from the beginning to the end, and publishers have bought into it. But if you look at how a newspaper or a magazine is consumed, let's go into the analog world. You don't need to read the newspaper from the front page to the back page no, or a magazine. Nonlinear. Nonlinear. So you jump into the parts that actually entices you. you scan or browse and you jump in, you consume and you comment on it maybe to your friends, whatever, and you move on. 
So why can't video be the same way? And that's basically the vision behind Videogram, is to create a random access into video so that you can consume the parts that you like. And once you like that part, you should be able to share that part or clip or segment with others and then move on. You don't have to consume end-to-end. Right, right. That's important. And so you were mentioning sharing. So if I decided to share a video, I could share just a particular snippet of it? That's right. Interesting. So uh, tell me about your customers. Who's using Videogram? So uh, we have a variety of customers that are using Videograms. We have, uh, we've actually run, ran a field trials uh, with almost close to 29 studios globally uh, in India and in, uh, in Los Angeles uh, and even in Japan. And out of that, uh, we came up with verticals. The first vertical is called Videogram Music. If you notice, uh, SoundCloud, uh, SoundCloud is all about commenting on a certain clip or a certain segment of the audio. So we provide same type of features for uh, music videos where you could stop at a frame and then you could basically comment on that frame and that comment is attached to that particular frame and when you're scanning, you're able to jump into that uh, and clearly uh, engage on that. Uh, The second vertical we do is um, uh, Videogram Live, uh, which is mostly focused on uh, sports, esports. And the third is uh, uh, Videogram Ants. So Videogram is a very good ad unit by itself. And the last vertical is, uh, which we are actually starting to take uh, take off very soon, is uh, we are creating a vertical for Videogram Anime, which is very much focused on taking Japanese content into overseas markets. All right. Hey, I, I want to dive deep into the verticals and the business sure. models sure. a little later. Sure, no problem. But before we do that, I want to back up just okay. a bit and talk a bit more about you. Sure. And your own history. Sure. So you've got a really deep background in right. video. You did it at General Motors. Right. You worked at Lucas's Industrial right. Light and Magic. And you ended up at Fuji Xerox Palo Alto Lab. So an almost 20-year career right. in big company video R&D. That's right. So how did this project come about? What on earth made you so, decide to... So- it's interesting, right? So I started my career and I've worked for big corporates all my life before I started this entity. I've been in video for almost 20 years, as you mentioned, and I started with GM. Uh, I was part of the first uh, VR, virtual reality lab that was built at GM back in 93, 94 timeframe. Um, and this is when VR was used heavily in automotive and uh, manufacturing. What, what were they using it for so in automotive? Crash, uh, for crash analysis. Um, so you would, instead of crashing real cars, uh, we would actually uh, use VR to uh, look at strains and stresses on a human body. So, and then we would also use uh, VR for uh, collusion. So if there is a parts that are colluding uh, when they're designing, because the parts are designed different, uh, at different locations by different teams, and when it comes together, you have issues in terms of collisions between parts. And for if you if you can actually put an engineer in a in a space where they can walk around with the car and look at collusion, they can actually then readjust and go back and do things much quicker, and it's less expensive rather than building the model, and then figuring out that it's not really fitting. And GM was doing this back in ninety three. Ninety three, yeah, that's and, amazing. That's and, awesome. Uh, GM was one of the, it's it's actually a research that came up came out of University of Urbana Champaign, and uh, it was called the Cave, the VR Cave. So we I was part of the team that built the first VR Cave. For GM, and since then, every automotive company, every manufacturing aerospace uses VR. VR is nothing new. It's 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 new from the consumer perspective. It's cheaper. It's cheaper. 
right? But it's been around uh, for at least 20 years. I, all my career, I've actually, you know, I've worked on VR. There, there used to be a language that we used to code in back then. It was uh, Silicon Graphics, which is dead by, you know, uh, right now. It used to be, there used to be a language called VRML. Right? It's like HTML. It used to be something called VRML. And we would use VRML to, uh, you know, manipulate geometry, uh, to figure out, you know, uh, basically location and things like that. And this, and the uh, accelerometer that we have on your iPhone, uh, this, this function was uh, done by a company called Ascension Technologies. It was a big brick called Flock of Birds, huge magnetic brick. And if you look back 20 years later, what the iPhone has today was basically what it was back then, but but the unit was much bigger. Well, it, it is amazing when you start digging into any technology, like really digging into right. it. It's amazing how much it's driven by continuity sure. rather rather than radical innovation. Exactly. You know, exactly. clever people can put the parts together in new ways right. and and uh, bring costs down, but right. the the components do seem to have this continuity that continuity, stretches back right? decades. And, and it's just basically persistence from whoever first enabled that technology, and they stayed on and. Just look for different use cases and different use, you know, models, and then finally it all ended up in the smartphone. Yeah, and, and it's it's the case with VR as well. But back to you in in Palo Alto, you were working on stuff you loved work on. Right. It was exciting work. Right. Why leave that for? Um... I didn't leave actually. Uh, I was part of the team. Um, my mandate was to look at uh, interactive media. Right. We were part of the team that looked at interactive media. And the product videogram comes from there. And this product was before YouTube. So there was no online video at that point of time. So we were very, very ahead of the curve. What, what year was this? This is 2003. Okay. YouTube was 2005. Um, so 2003, we had a mature product. And the reason that this product was uh, invented in the first place was for training. So if you look at Fuji Xerox back here in Japan, uh, there's to be copiers and printers. The iteration is pretty um, uh, pretty quick. Every three months, there's a new copier and a new printer released to market. After sales uh, repair becomes an issue because we have to keep training these people with new models and new uh, and, and new uh, you know uh, parts that's coming in. So the whole concept of Videogram was let's take those training videos and then chapterize it automatically, so that People can randomly jump in to say how to fix a toner um, or how to, you know, fix a paper jam instead of... Right. And, and so this was the first use this of that paneled of display. display. So around that time, Fuji Xerox basically decided that they wanted to productize this. And uh, they created a team called Media Depot. I was working directly with the Media Depot team, so I ended up traveling to Japan a lot. I kind of looked at that and said, well, this might be interesting even for the consumer space there was consumers were not creating video right and the studios were very much focused on uh, you know dvds and vhs so there was no online the netflix kind of changed that market but the fact that i was in japan and i was looking at the smartphone market or the feature phone market but as a fuji xerox is not really a consumer company it's a enterprise company so they were they were pretty happy with just using the product for a training video and yeah i can see that so uh, there was it was a dead end for me there and the only way that I thought this had any kind of viable uh, opportunity for this to get to what I wanted to do with it was wait. So wait till the market caught up. I left Fujifilm, left Fuji Xerox, and I kind of kept in touch with you know the team that I was working there, the licensing team and so forth. And around 2008, when YouTube really started to get into uh, main, main traction, then I went back and negotiated uh, patents. 
uh, with uh, Fuji Xerox. So we got access to 30 patents, uh, and then I decided to start the company. Okay. So was Fujifilm happy to to lease you these or, or sell you the rights to uh, these patents? Fuji Xerox is very happy. They didn't really see any value for, for them inside the company. But the fact is that they had spent so much time and uh, resources to build this technology. They were happy that somebody from the inside is taking this to market. And so they're very supportive, uh, even to this day. Um, that's, that's really encouraging. Did they, did they invest? No, they didn't invest uh, because, again, this is a cons- ours is basically a B2B to C business. They're not in that space. But the licensing deal is pretty good. It's a very uh, founder-friendly licensing deal. Excellent. Well, that's interesting because your, your company itself, you've, you've sort of bounced around quite a bit. You, you've been in Japan. You were in the U.S., both in San Francisco for a while and L.A. And right. Why the moving? Most, most sure. companies move either when they're chasing funding right. or when they're chasing clients. At first, I thought this would be a company that's better off being in the U.S., in, in Silicon Valley. And what really happened was that out of the three individuals that started this company, I'm the only U.S. citizen. The other two, one is Indian, the other guy was Japanese. We couldn't get visas. Really? Yeah, for H-1B visas, because H-1B visas, is, you know, mainly for startups, is very hard to come by, even to this day. So we fell back into Tokyo. Do you feel like the U.S. is just a more innovative market in terms of a video and trying um, new things? No, that, no, no. that's not why the reason I wanted to be in the U.S. I wanted to be in the U.S. because of the talent. My first choice would have been Japan. If, we, if, I had, if I could get and build the talent here, the mentality of the Japanese market is such that startups are uh, the, the last thing that they would consider uh, because, it's, uh, because of the risk factor, which, you know, which is how um, is, the perception is, yeah. It's getting better than it used to be, but, yeah, but it, is, yeah. it is challenging. Not back then, not in people. 2012, right? 2012, yeah. it was very difficult for us. Added to all that, there was also the language issue. So my intention of going to U.S. is to solve those things. Um, so now we have offices here and in Tokyo where the headquarters is. All the headquarters operations are here. The dev team sits in India. I mean, these days it is so distributed teams are so much easier to manage than they have been at any point in history. Absolutely, yeah. I think with uh, technologies like Slack, for example, I don't really see any issues in distributed teams at all. We work quite efficiently without being in one place. Okay. When you were in the U.S., you were part of the Turner Broadcasting Media Camp. That's right. Those kind of programs are really interesting, and I'm I'm curious, there's been a big enough, enough time has passed now that I think you've got a really good perspective on it. Right. Immediately after those programs, it feels like there's all these moment, all this momentum, and people are really excited about it. But right. but long term, right. did you guys get a lot of benefit from no. it? No, no. I actually, go, having gone through the Turner Media Camp program, um, I would say that the intention of the Turner Media Camp team was uh, they were very entrepreneurial. There were two two media camps. One was Turner, one was Warner, and both of them were very entrepreneurial teams. But the problem was that they were trying to crack the nut. Trying to wag the dog by its tail. <laughs> so, just they were what they, they were just looking for something too specific, or what no? Was the what happens is that big organizations and media companies. I'm not going to single single out Turner, um, but big media companies uh, they have fiefdoms inside, and each fiefdom has its own strategy, has its own you know KPIs, has its own uh, intention of what they want to do, and if the startup that's trying to do doesn't fit into their internal bureaucracy and organization, they're not going to move towards that. So, so the people 
in charge of the the media labs right. don't have the political clout they to don't, they don't force because, the way force because, other people to because change. they're just like us they're also a startup the only difference is they have only one investor which is the media company they're just founders like us and they're trying to push us into different groups and into different use cases and it almost appears forced there are there are certain stakeholders and sponsors that really like you but in any big organization having worked at gm having worked at big organizations innovation is very very difficult when it comes from outside yeah it 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 is even when you have really strong internal sponsors yeah. from the top down nobody likes to change the way they do business right right yeah so uh, yeah i think uh, in in hindsight you know it was a great program i if i if i would i do it again maybe not but did i enjoy being there when, and and along with people that actually organized the, this this media camp it was the best time of my life because it was everybody were entrepreneurial we got we could bounce ideas and we could but i'll say one thing that we did get out of that program is that uh, because of the media camp and mainly because of the content relationship they have with uh, social networks like twitter uh, we got status with twitter so we are one of the only few, few video platforms that have embed status So Videogram can run natively, natively inside. inside Twitter. Oh, excellent. That is that, huge. That, that came about because of MediaCamp. So I guess it sounds like for, for startups going into these programs, they need to manage their expectations. We had a product market fit. But the problem is that our product market fit was not necessarily what uh, would have worked for uh, you know, Turner. They were still kind of behind the curve. We, we had innovated much, much further downstream. Their systems hadn't caught up to that. Mm. So it was wishful thinking that we would bring them forward but that's not how it works you can't move the elephant right you, <laughs> so, you you have to be sort of exactly what they're looking for at that point in you, time you have to be in their eyes line of sight as they're approaching you right you cannot make them approach you as they're approaching you you have to be in their line of sight we were trying to get them to approach us which is not possible which sounds like a losing battle it's a losing battle yeah, yeah. Well actually, you know, I've heard you mention before that you don't view Videogram as a technology company. You view yourself as a media company. Yeah, we kind of view ourselves as a platform plus content. The content plays a part in how the technology develops. We are very much focused on machine learning and AI. Content is very important for us. And understanding how users are behaving on the on that content is what contributes to the platform. But I I guess it's like so I mean you've got some great content partnerships. You've yeah. done you've got channels for like TechCrunch and Tyra Banks and and I guess what I'm curious is the media play creating the content is that largely as a market-based proof of the technology hoping that others will understand the advantage and adopt it or are you trying to really make money and make a viable business strictly around the content. So we are trying to make viable business strictly around the content and while we are doing that we are making sure that our technology platform is continually evolving. So we started off as a technology company we spent a lot of time on the technology side but now we are breaking out into also becoming a content company. So we are putting together platform plus technology. It it, it is so difficult and so expensive to build content to vid- right. video content. Right. So why not just run your service on top of like YouTube? Many different reasons. Um uh, first of all YouTube wouldn't use our technology. 
Uh, because okay, it breaks so the it dedicated breaks player. Dedicated player. And it also breaks their existing monetization. YouTube's monetization is pre-roll videos, right? pre-roll ads in front of videos. Our way of monetization is contextual. So we don't want people to start videos from the beginning. Okay. We want people to start videos from, and access videos randomly from wherever they are. And we don't believe truly believe in pre-roll advertising. We believe that there's got to be contextual advertising, you know, commerce-based. That's basically why we have to stand alone because we can't go into and sell our sell our technology into existing platforms uh, because there's no market for that. But getting back, so my <laughs> maybe my background is all B two B software sales. So anytime I hear about a product, maybe there's just some background process that's sure. saying like, how could I sell this to businesses? Right. But but to me, it would seem like the one of the strongest cases right. for this technology would be. For example, sports, but not necessarily sports on your channel, like on their own home pages or sure. or applications in like e-commerce right. or right, you know, uh, demonstration videos type sure. thing. You know, those exist, and those are some things that we those we do it for free. We use that as our branding and marketing. Okay. So instead of doing advertising on Facebook or Twitter, we basically provide our services for free to websites. Uh, with one line of uh, auto, you know, auto embed code, uh, JavaScript code, it converts all of your uh, site videos into videogram format with all the feature sets. We do that already, right? And and we have a lot of websites that use us. Uh, where we are very interested is uh, the long tail. So we want to go after the large verticals, going after music vertical, for example, or uh, or even a CCTV vertical. That's interesting. Those basically means that we would align ourselves with the with the top one or two players in the market. So is it similar? It's similar to like a freemium model That's where right. a handful of videos, right. it's, it's it's free, free and then after a certain threshold. Yeah, it just converts. Yeah. Most of the players that we are going after have large assets, large libraries. The music label uh, that we work in India, uh, they they have like close to some 7,000 music videos. So you make a lab, you know, contract with one label and open up a videogram music and then other labels kind of add to it and then you start to really now look at a whole vertical that, that gets developed. Now that this, this technology is getting out in the market, I'm always curious, is it changing the way people watch videos? Do they, do they jump around more? Yeah. Or what, how, snacking. How is it? We call that snacking. snacking. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, uh, snacking is something that people, people do a lot. Even, in, even on YouTube, they do that. But it's just that you don't realize it because you're you're always scrubbing the video on YouTube. Oh right, you just manually yeah. scrub. Yeah, you're manually scrubbing uh, without. You know, YouTube does provide you a visual. Uh, you know, when you're scrubbing, it does provide you a visual frame, but it's it's small, right? Whereas in our case, so let's say that you you were watching a video and you're clicking more on on, on a certain type of dog, um, so it learns. The system is learning that you know you really like this dog, so the next time around in another video, there's if there's a dog then what happens is that your discovery layer is the dog shows up as one of the frames. Okay, wait. So how dynamic is this? Are, are these storyboards kind of generated automatically? So if I personally really like dogs, right. I'll be seeing a lot more dogs in everybody's music videos or whatever? It's, uh, it's personalized to the individual. And oh. it's personalized to the individual, to the geography, to the audience network. So most of the cases, the media companies have uh, audience data. Um, so there's a lot more information about a, a consumer. So the thing is, indexing is uh, global. It's it's one one index, right? All right. But each and every person has their own graph. Okay. So a, a five-minute video might have, um, let's say, 60 keyframes, right? Whereas uh, we would surface maybe only six keyframes or seven keyframes to entice you. And that seven keyframes that we would surface for you 
would be different from somebody else because personalization where was you know your your interests are might be different from them yeah no that's that's truly fascinating it's one of those things that it, it feels like it's 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 a, a technology where we're just beginning to understand how it could be used right. yeah and there's a lot of you know we have a lot of data that we collect in the back end it's pretty complex to mine it because there's so many things you can do with the data as i said we we break it down into lego blocks and you can take each block and and then build a use case from it but it, it seems to me this is a commercial advertiser's dream because if if toyota comes up to me and says okay we need a video to sell this year's prius right. they could make a 30 minute video that's right yeah. and then use this profiling so everyone that views the sit the video would would see the sections that would most appeal to, to them. them that's right I'm pretty sure that there are a couple of companies that are working in the same space as we are but the market's so huge and also the 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 platform and the algorithms are so complex you're absolutely right it's an advertiser's dream but that means you know all of these ad agencies have their own existing workflows I'll I'll tell you the simplest issue with any ad agency when they go to a brand and make a deal they'll make the advertisement they'll they'll hire the actors they'll do the scripting and storyboarding they'll shoot the video and then they have distribution channels along the way one of the line items in in the sale is the creatives where the creatives are you know it's it's then you know, the art director or the creative director and that's you know there's a web director or there's, so there's like a lot of jobs involved here and if we use videogram those things will go away uh-huh. But I, you know though but it's it's a lot like the same the same issue you ran into with with Turner Media yeah, it's, yeah, it's just right. even if they can use you they have to be at that exact point in time exactly. where they're ready for it exactly exactly so we are at the inflection point right now so we have waited and waited and waited we are at a point where we are starting to see the ad agencies and the media companies starting to now look into machine learning that didn't exist for four years ago or even two years ago suddenly every media company and ad company is saying well we need to take a look at this right. even the japanese ad companies are saying that which is you know quite fast if you have to be well for a japanese <laughs> enterprise yeah <laughs> so so now is where we actually are in a position to start to really work with these guys and start to take this to the next level let's talk a bit about japan sure. in general you took a really different path to founding your company than than most entrepreneurs did. You you sort of self-spun out right of a company. You negotiated right. for the IP. Right. And Japan has tremendous intellectual property. Right. They they've Japanese enterprises have always done fantastic fundamental research. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you see other people in Japan kind of taking the same path you are or if not do you think we'll see more people well, sort of spinning I themselves would, out i would love to see more people do what i what i've done the issue here is that first of all the japanese companies are not very they're not very open on the patents that they have and it takes an insider sometimes to figure this out so what I, the issue here is that if i if i'm entrepreneur x on the street i cannot knock on an entre- uh, enterprise in japan and say give me the patents and i want to work it can only happen if you're an insider i think instead of looking at entrepreneurs I, the japanese companies should look at intrapreneurs they should educate and um and basically um, fund internal people to spin out 
So maybe go out of their way to, to have the entrepreneur or the intrapreneur say, hey, take a look at these patents. That's right. So if they can create internal processes to educate uh, you know, young people or even, you know, even people that have been in the company for a longer time, they have a lot of data, obviously, and a lot of experience. If they can actually get them out, seed them, you know, seed a little bit, let them loose and let them go survive and, and raise money from others. And then at any point of time, you have control to buy that back if that becomes a viable business. And, and I, I encourage companies, every time I meet companies and I encourage them to do it, but I have not seen anybody do it so far. Really? So just talking about it? Yeah. You know, the Japanese universities have a, a similar problem. They, they have a lot of patents, but right. they're terrible at licensing it. Right. Just my own experience working for Fuji Xerox. The, the patents that Fuji Xerox has, even to this day, is amazing. It's not even the tip of the iceberg, what I have. So is, is the problem that people don't know what patents they have, or Fuji Xerox just doesn't have a process, or that they... From my personal experience, uh, I think where the issue here is that you have great technologists, and then you have the business people that know how to uh, monetize that. In my case, I kind of got both. So the Japanese companies either have one or the other, and they have to get them to a team. So this is where the Silicon Valley's thing about, uh, you know, founder CEOs being engineers is a good thing. Right, right, because they can understand the patents and see the market value. It doesn't have to be, you know, my, in my case, my business is not so deep compared to my technology. My technology is deeper. But the fact that I could understand some pieces of the business, that I'm able to piggyback on that and try to look at different use cases and move that forward, right? And then plus the ability to raise funds, which is very important. Uh, it's an art by itself. Yeah, <laughs> yes. it's exhausting. It's exhausting. Um, you mentioned before, like, all of your fundraising has been in Japan. Right. And you've gotten a lot of Japanese media companies investors as well, right. like Asahi's Asahi, investor. Yeah. Asahi Broadcasting. So... Have the Japanese investors been more anxious to deploy the the technology than, say, uh, no. the Turner Network? No, no, they haven't either. <laughs> Is it the same problem? It's the same problem. Yeah. It's 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 universal in the media companies. It's the same problem, right? And and both Docomo, Samsung, Asahi, you know, they invested and they really really wanted to deploy uh, the, our technology internally, but they're internal stakeholders and fiefdoms. Uh, that's an issue. And then the secondary issue in Japan, rights. Rights is a big issue here. Just because somebody has broadcast rights for a piece of content doesn't mean that they have streaming media rights. Right? So Even in Japan? Even, I, thought, yeah, I no. thought things were so siloed no, 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 here. No. They would, oh my. So once those rights issues are somehow cleared, then you will actually see an explosion in the market. So today, they struggle a lot in putting the content into YouTube. It is not an easy thing for them to do. They feel that their copyright will be infringed on. And if you look at the content that they do put on YouTube, it's a piece of content that's so small, like two minutes, three minutes. So know. really just baby steps. Just, yeah, baby steps, right. They're still researching whether to license their content to OTT platforms like Netflix. If you look at Netflix, Netflix is having a tremendous amount of pain in Japan in, in acquiring local content. Yeah. And, and even, you know, even that, they're, they're just like not yet ready to let go of, of the content. Amazing. It's definitely improving. It just seems to be improving very slowly. When it accelerates, it'll accelerate quick, as everything in Japan, you know, where there's an inflection point and there's like. I think that change is coming because of the Olympics. Uh, because there's going to be a lot of video activity in Japan in the next three years. 
So one of the issues is live streaming of sports, right? I mean, I think all of that will change the market. Because if, if Japan doesn't take care of its internet live streaming before the Olympic happens, another country will. <laughs> right. So that will force, I think, to a certain extent to open up and start to do things. Excellent. Well, listen, Sandeep, before we wrap up, I want to ask you what I call my magic wand question. Sure. And that is, if I gave you a magic wand and I told you you could change one thing about Japan, anything at all, its education system, the way people think about risk, the attitude towards startups, anything at all to make it better for startups in Japan, what would you change? Risk capital. Risk capital? Yeah. Just more of it? Um, no, more intelligent, not, not, not uh, spray and pray. What do you mean? Do you, is it, you mean like, so example, like the fact that Japan, there's so much corporate VC or? Yeah, there's a lot of CV, so a lot of follow investors in Japan. Mm. There's you know, very few uh, that take the lead. That's number one, right? Number two, there is an aversion to investing in foreign founders in Japan. And I have encountered that a lot here. And I know that other foreign founders here in Japan have also encountered the same situation. Yeah, yeah it, it, it's very real. Yeah. So They'll do it, but it's, you get extra scrutiny, so that's for sure. For that, right? So I think I want to see more investments in foreign founders as well. Yeah. And that will hopefully mentor the local Japanese you know, education system and start to really bring in the next level of uh, founders. Well, I think actually getting back to the comments you made at first about the smart money in Japan, I, I have noticed this. And one of the things I advise people who are looking to raise funds in Japan, probably only one in 10 funds are willing to lead around. Yeah, that's true. They'll take meetings all day long. Yeah, but true. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I think that's, that's got to change. That has to change. Uh, there should be more, more, you know, more VCs that, that should take the lead. They should, they, they should be taking micro shots, right? I mean, I'm not talking about investing millions of dollars. Seed the companies. But I'd like to see uh, basically large companies start to do this as well. If large companies start to do the entrepreneur thing that I was talking about, then I think the VC system will improve. Do you see it changing? I mean, the only thing that ever changes VC behavior is fear of missing out not getting into a deal. Yeah, you see, that's, that's another issue that I, I see is that that's where the valuations go out of whack in Japan. Because everyone crowds into the same everyone Crowds deals. into that. And if you, if I've noticed companies raising 10, 20, 20 30 million Series A's where everybody's crowding into it and, and upping the valuation and, and it, it hasn't even seen the product market fit and it's already gotten like, you know, 10, 15 million dollars in investment. Um, so I think, that's why I said, you know, investing smartly. Uh, and, and, and grow the entrepreneur, grow the, you know, the ecosystem, not one company or one, you know, founder, just grow the whole ecosystem. So when you were out raising as, as a foreign founder, yeah. what sort of extra scrutiny did you feel? Did, did people just ask you directly, like, are you going to have a, a Japanese co-founder? Yeah. Why isn't he presenting today? Or? Yeah, but not, not necessarily so directly, <laughs> but they always, they always wonder, wh what are you doing here in Japan? Why are you not in Silicon Valley? What is what is your intention of you know doing this in Japan? What, what did you tell them? Uh, I don't know. I always tell them, look, look, ideas can uh, can be uh, can be seeded anywhere. It doesn't have to be a valley. Silicon Valley doesn't have a magic. Uh, it's not a magical place where just because you raise money, to, you know, five miles from Sand Hill Road, you become successful. It doesn't happen. The success and failures of startups is universally the same. 
nine in ten startups fail, right? It has nothing to do with whether I'm close to Sand Hill Road or I'm in Tokyo. Right? If I have a good product, it'll survive. If I have persistence, it will go to the next level. And that always convinces them, actually, when I when I say that. Yeah. You successfully raised all your rounds and all your funding in Tokyo, so you obviously got over those hurdles. Right. Well, I keep getting over those hurdles, you know, one step at a time, right? It continues. Yeah, so it's it's just more more due diligence. More due diligence, yeah. But more definitely diligence. possible. Yeah, definitely possible. And I think I would say that it's getting better because we've raised now enough money that there's a critical mass and then we have a great product and we have access into other markets, uh, which starts to open up opportunities for us. Um, so I'll continue to raise money here in Japan and I'll continue to raise money you know, in the region. Um, and for the bare fact that uh, Silicon Valley doesn't invest any, any, you know, anywhere outside of that 10-mile Sand, <laughs> Sand Hill Road radius. <laughs> right? Yeah, they don't have to. I mean, <laughs> the world comes to them. Right. Yeah. What, what advice would you have for foreign startup founders here in Japan who want to raise money? Well, first of all, I think you need to have a very unique product. First thing, it doesn't have to be technology, right? It could be consumer services, it could be uh, travel, it could be any, anything that you do, it has to, be, has to have the uniqueness. And the very most important part is it has to be global. You can't take an idea that's domestic uh, and then just work on that and, 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 and ex- expect to raise money. That's good, idea. that's good advice in general, though, but you think Japanese investors are particularly... Yeah. If the validation of that idea doesn't happen domestically, they don't think there's a market for it. Time and time again, I get asked to prove when I'm raising money, how is this going to work in Japan? When I tell them, look, this is a global company, it is not just focused on Japan, it's focused on you know, globally, right? It's, it's, any, anywhere there's a market, we will chase it down. It doesn't have to be in Japan. If it's in Japan, it's fantastic because we're here. But that that's another hurdle that uh, foreign entrepreneurs have to get past. But in a sense, though, when you're, when you're saying, no, it's a global market, the, you know, we live in a global economy, you're sort of turning your, your weakness of being a foreigner into a strength. Absolutely. Because you're, you're, you're basically applying yourself as a bridge from here to there and then from there to here as well. Um, and, and there is opportunities there, uh, lots and lots of opportunities when you actually start to bridging. Uh, we see today in the last one year or so, we're seeing a lot of cross-border opportunities between India and Japan for example, right, in, in the media space. Yeah. There's a lot of Indian companies, Indian media companies that have approached us and saying, you know, how do we enter Japan? Can we do this through your videogram platform? And it's vice versa, right? And we have Japanese companies approaching us and saying, we have anime, can we put it on your platform? And then can, can you just localize it into the Indian market? So that wouldn't exist if I didn't persist here for so long. Yeah. Or if you pitched yourself as a typical Japanese, Japanese entrepreneur. Yeah, that's right, yeah. So go global. <laughs> right. Go global from day one. Right? And when you start to design your product, make, make sure that the design is scalable to all markets and, and raise fundings, uh, funding on that and not on a very niche Japan. I'm not saying that there is, it doesn't work if you have a niche product for Japan, uh, but a niche product for Japan has probably less chance of success yeah. uh, than a product that can be scaled outside Japan. Well, listen, Sandeep, thanks so much for Thank sitting down with much. me. Thank you very much, yeah. It's great. Thank you very much. And we're back. You know, it's interesting how some great ideas catch on right away. Some take years to be adopted, and some never seem to work out at all. We like to think that the march of technology is inevitable. 
But there's certainly a fair bit of luck and timing involved, not only in startup success, but in the success of any given technology as well. Still, since there's over 400 hours of video being uploaded to YouTube every single minute, it's clear that we're in desperate need of a better way to discover, share, and consume video. And Videogram has one of the best approaches I've ever seen to this problem. So if you haven't seen these videos yet, you probably will soon. And as Sandeep and I discussed, it's amazing to think about how much of what we consider to be innovative and breakthrough technologies that suddenly burst into the consumer and investor awareness are really the result of 20, 30, 40 years or longer of steady, fairly predictable, continuous and incremental innovation. So much of today's VR and AR falls into that category. Don't get me wrong. It's not that today's innovators are not creative or that they don't deserve the accolades and the recognition they received. But it's worth acknowledging that they are, in the words of Isaac Newton, standing on the shoulders of giants. Sandeep's problems getting a U.S. visa as a founder is uh, unfortunately a common one, and the U.S. is one of the most difficult countries in this regard. Now, to be fair, Silicon Valley seems to have no trouble in attracting global talent, and there's no shortage of global founders who want to go there. But still, a lot of other countries are moving in the other direction and making it easier for foreign founders to move there. Singapore has made huge strides in this regard, and so has Fukuoka, and to a lesser extent, Japan in general. They're all becoming much more startup-friendly. However, as we discussed on the show, if you're raising money as a foreign founder in Japan, you'd better have an international story. Your global vision and your market understanding are the one area where you probably have a strong competitive advantage over your local competition, so be sure to use it. If you've got a story about creating or using video, Sandeep and I would love to hear from you. So come by disruptingjapan.com show 106 and tell us about it. And when you drop by the site, you'll see all the links and notes that Sandeep and I talked about and much, much more in the resources section of the post. And by the way, please feel free to get in touch and connect with Disrupting Japan on Twitter or Facebook or even drop in on our LinkedIn group. A quick search for Disrupting Japan on any of those platforms will take you right to us. I'd love to hear from you, and we have a lot more information about Japan on the social sites and on our main website as well. But most of all, thanks for listening. And thank you for letting people interested in Japanese startups know about the show. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for listening to Disrupting Japan.